It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down I was born. Cool. Hello, uh, everyone. Welcome to a, a very special edition, a, a new medium, if you will, uh, for American Loser Podcast. Uh, we're on StreamYard today. Uh, thanks to Tropical Storm Faye that is uh, hitting New Jersey pretty heavy right now. Uh, we got uh, myself here behind uh, the computer we're doing on StreamYard. Uh, the kahunas behind the ones and twos, but, uh, you know, in another part of the state. And wow. uh <laughs> I'm actually really excited because uh, we have an esteemed guest. Okay, I just said uh, the line earlier, and it, it's it was funny to me because it's true. We've had more uh, plumbers and uh, and cops and uh, you know former uh, inmates on the show as guests to talk about history than we have actual legitimate scholarly folks. So I'm very excited today to welcome our guest, uh, Mr. David Warmflash. How are you, sir? Oh, uh, hi. How are you doing? I'm excellent, man. It was uh, you reached out. You sent me a really awesome message on uh, Instagram, and uh, we've just been kind of chatting back and forth ever since. You always have something very interesting, or um, you're very complimentary of the show too, which I appreciate. It's nice to know that um, the learned folks of the world like what we do too. You know. Um, well, thank you uh, for the, the warm introduction. Um, well, I mean, I think it's great what you're doing. It, in fact, I think you ought to consider. Could you get your teacher certification and teach U.S. <laughs> history in high school? Compared with the standard, I think you'd, you'd really you'd, you'd do really well. The kids would like you. Nah, he's not wrong. Like I truly, yeah. I actually really agree with David on that one. I think you'd make mm -hmm. a great history teacher. <laughs> I mean, that's considering I like my perspective is is the extreme end of things. I had a high school teacher, a history teacher, for U.S. history who was just so uh, – he was so lame that I enjoyed it because I, I just thought it was funny because I appreciated it because I was a pretty good student. Uh, he would be just um, – he would lecture in note-taking form to make Oof. it easier for everyone. And he had this really distinct way of talking with a low voice. He would just like, just say what I, what I say, just put that in your notebook – and he'd be like, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the brain trust, the new <laughs> deal, Len Lease. Every kid had exactly the same in the notebook year after year. And I think he just used the same lecture notes for 20 years. Because what happened is one of my brothers is younger. And two years later, he had the exact same teacher for U.S. history. And... This teacher, he was like the softball coach. So it was like for girls softball. And I don't know, something happened like with one of the, one of the girls, you know, oh, accused man. him, you know what, right? So they suspend the guy for a while. So there's a, there's a sub when, when my brother's taking the class, like toward the part of the year when they're getting to FDR. And my brother had been reading through my history notebook. He's like, hey, this is like word for word, like in my notebook. So he takes my notebook because it's the kind of sub that doesn't really teach. It's just like, okay, you guys do what you want. I'm just a sub. And so my brother brings in my notebook and he's like, FDR, the brain trust, the new deal. And 
the whole thing. And the class just gets exactly the same lecture it would have gotten. And teacher gets back and he's like, oh, you guys, you guys know your stuff. How'd you do that? <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, that reminded me. I took um, I think it was uh, modern American history at mm -hmm. uh, the esteemed Brookdale Community College. Mm -hmm. And one of the professors was uh, he was on his way out, if you will, in terms of, you know, he was on the maybe a year or two yeah. left before he was hanging it up. And uh, I realized that uh, he actually didn't teach anything. He just said, here's yeah. the reading you do. And then we watched um, The Presidents, which was a History Channel special. So, Oh, I saw that. This and if, if you watched it, then you yeah. took this guy's class. That literally yeah. didn't do anything that deviated from that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. David, if I can ask you real quick, just so the audience, because you mean, uh, you know, we've gotten to know each other pretty well here. And uh, I've been reading some of your messages to Kahuna when we're in studio. But um, just what's your background really quick? Because, uh, again, we are excited to have a, a legit guest guest on today. And you have something really cool to plug at the end I'm excited for. Yeah, I do. i start plugging it now just a little just to get you guys nice. ready with the appetite. So, well, I'm a, I am a kind of a space doctor, uh, medical doctor, researcher, uh, researching aerospace medicine and also astrobiology, which are two separate things, but they kind of intersect a lot. And uh, because I wrote this book that I'll plug in the end, but I'm shamelessly plugging it again here, Moon and Illustrated History, it really brings a lot of general history into it. So it kind of, you know, makes me an unofficial historian of, uh, of the space age and of everything leading into it. In fact, this goes all the way back to ancient times because it's all about how the moon influenced human history. Which is awesome. And by the way, if you guys Google that real quickly, if you Google... Um uh, David, the first thing that pops up is a link to the book, I believe, which I'm excited. Yeah, probably yeah. going to be my dad's Christmas gift this year. Just letting you know. Oh, cool. So, a surprise uh, gift. So don't let him see this. No, he doesn't know how computers work. So we're safe right now. <laughs> oh, so you can see uh, like, like my mother, who's uh, the way she uh, emails is like my dad prints out an email for her and she tells him what she wants to write back and he <laughs> types it out. <laughs> Oh, shit. All right. That's that's another level right there, man. Yeah. But uh, in, in doing the research for the book, you were saying that it started because you wind up becoming a little bit of a historian, which I, I like that part. Um, yeah. Yeah. So if, if you ever want to do a show on like LBJ or something, it, it's just that's the era, the space age. And I think he's underappreciated because we always think, oh, JFK got the whole moon program going what actually it actually started with lbj he was the one pushing for it. he wrote the national aeronautics and space act that president eisenhower signed creating nasa because this is what lbj wanted he was really into it along with the nasa administrator james webb those two they were pitching it over and over to jfk he's like ah, i don't you know what's this moon stuff the space stuff until the bay of pigs and then then uh yuri gagarin going into space and Kennedy then needed something. And that's when he's like, oh, what was that moon thing you were telling me about? Well, let me hear more about that. And that's what really got nice. it started. Yeah, JFK was good with um, the PR stuff because uh, yeah. they were saying we, we did do an episode. We had uh, semi-unrelease mm -hmm. uh, on Bay of Pigs because yeah. as soon as I bring on my moron comedy friends and, uh, you know, sometimes they go a little too far. So, um, but Bay Yeah, of but that, that's what engages the people. You know, otherwise you're going to be like my history high school teacher, you know, Teddy Roosevelt. The brain trust. Speak softly. Carry a big stick. If, if everybody just was the brain trust, if that's what he went yeah. with everybody, I would have. Because yeah. it sounds like the guy was uh, 
nothing puts me to sleep faster than a Ken Burns documentary. I'll be <laughs> so, Yeah. But yeah. no, so that's interesting. So uh, you were breaking this down for me too, that, uh, cause I, I thought this was weird. Um, we had a poster hanging up in, I want to say my third or fourth grade classroom that mm-hmm. had every president on it. And it was like yeah. just profile shots. And uh, then in the background was something their presidency was all about. And oddly enough, the, I wound up playing JFK and we did a president presentation yeah. and his photo in the background was with, um, you know, the NASA rockets going off in the background that yeah. we really do. You're right. We credit him maybe too much. Uh, I mean, yeah. yeah. So LBJ is really the unsung hero of that, huh? He really, I kind of learned it um, writing the book. And, and it's the kind of thing that I learned, like after the book's already gone to print, <laughs> Uh, it's that type of thing. But but I really, you know, I know the LBJ component of it right now, and he really is underappreciated. I mean, we we preserve his name. The Johnson Space Center in Houston is named for him. Uh, so that's a really big thing. But uh, I think when the first name that pops in your head of presidents when you think of the space program, most people think JFK, and LBJ never occurs to them. I think he gets underappreciated for a lot just because of Vietnam and what that did to his presidency, we forget about all his other accomplishments in every other area. Oh yeah. Uh, the great society then inheriting yeah. the presidency uh, on a plane ride. I mean, I've, I've been pretty yeah. hung over on some plane rides, but I've never woken up president before. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 So I don't know, maybe that's a category for, for American loser. I would say yeah. it fits for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had another quick question for, you, if you don't mind, um, sure. We had, because you and I were also talking um, offline about uh, another topic for Loser we covered not too long ago, and that was um, a guy who had a very famous yeah. picture with uh, uh, JFK, and that was uh, Werner von Braun. Right, yeah. It, yeah. Is it true we couldn't have done any of this without him? Well, um, it depends on what your, what timeline, you're, you know, if you, you could imagine an alternative timeline without him, but you would have to go way back to Robert Goddard, and who you also mentioned oh, yeah. in, in the podcast, because uh, we got to keep in mind that Goddard launched the first liquid-fueled rocket, and but the U.S. wasn't the government wasn't really paying attention to him. It was uh, only the Nazis were really paying attention to what he was doing. Uh, so if we can imagine alternative history where. The U.S. government is like, oh, this Goddard guy and liquid fuel rockets. That's that's important. Let's fund that. Let's put attention to that. He didn't really he didn't really get much other than a little project to put some rockets on some uh, some aircraft on some early aircraft carriers for those early planes on those carriers. They let him do a small project like that. that they funded, but otherwise, he sort of they didn't appreciate rockets. Uh, we, we're sort of in a situation in the uh, lead up to World War II where the different leading countries, some were more advanced in certain technologies and others were more advanced in other technologies. So where you had rockets, that was the Germans way ahead. Yeah. You know, the British and the Americans, they were developing the radar. And so Germans were way behind on radar. British were ahead with the help of the Americans. And so it's an asymmetric kind of, of fighting there. And that made all the difference. But you could easily imagine different things being emphasized at different points in history, and you'd have a totally different history. I could certainly imagine a history where we don't have Von Braun, and we have a Robert Goddard doing what Von Braun did roughly in the same time period, and then sure. But 
you know, just judging by even how how the media portrayed Goddard. I mean, the New York Times totally trashed him in 1920 in an editorial. <laughs> uh, he had written an article for the Smithsonian Magazine uh, explaining how rockets could get people into space and to the moon and to the planets. And the Times is like, oh, that physicist in Massachusetts, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Because obviously the rocket needs to push against air, <laughs> which is totally misconstruing uh, a law by kind of a famous guy that you probably heard of who uh, was born on December 25th, many centuries ago. You know who I'm talking about? Christmas Day, huh? Mm, who, who could that have been? Let's see. I'm going to, uh, I mean, because if I remember anything correctly, and again, yeah. please remember, I yeah. did learn most of my uh, beyond yeah. high school years was at Brookdale Community College. So yeah. if I recall, <laughs> the first year, uh, rule of thermodynamics is you don't talk about Flight Club. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Let's see. Well, so this guy had, it's not Jesus. <laughs> the, the, well, that's always the misleading thing because Neil deGrasse Tyson, the science Greek science communicator of uh, of um, the Hayden Planetarium on the Upper West Side, he's always starting off Christmas Day with the most important person in history was born on this day, who changed the world and changed humanity. You know, everyone's like, "Oh, well, obviously," and he's like, and his name was. Sir Isaac Newton. Oh, shit. I didn't even know he was born yeah. on Christmas Day. That's wild. Yeah, and it actually depends which calendar, because there's like the Gregorian and the Julian, and I'm confused all like which one is which. But on one of them, he's born on Christmas Day. Another one is like the first week of January. And so Newton's third law is the law of action and reaction. So if you like stand on a skateboard, if I, if I then give you like a baseball, and you throw the baseball while you're standing on a skateboard, you're going to go backwards. You're going to go the opposite direction that you threw the baseball. If I give you like you're a probably basketball. probably down knowing me too. Skateboard well, for guys who are built like me. <laughs> but if you throw something heavier, like, um, you know, like a medicine ball, you know, like those heavy things they used on the Flintstones, you'll go, you know, you'll go, you'll, you'll, you'll have more momentum because the ball itself has more momentum. Your momentum will match the momentum of the thing that you're throwing out the other way. And momentum is velocity times mass. So the higher the mass of the thing and the higher the velocity of the thing that's getting pushed away, the more momentum there is pushing the other way. So the less mass that you have, the faster you'll go or the stronger you'll accelerate. So if a little like five-year-old kid throws the same ball at the same speed, he'll go way faster. The time that someone tried to explain that to me um, in high school, I remember um, because they, they were trying to they thought they were helping me. But what they did is my brain actually divided by zero. Uh, and what happened was the, the guy, singularity. <laughs> yeah. Well, the guy, uh, he, he was my teacher. Great guy. And um, he was telling me, he goes, he goes, Burke, you ever uh, you ever been on a bus before? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, you ever jump up while you were on a bus? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And he's like, he's like, did you, did the bus keep moving and you didn't? And I was like, no. And then he was like, he's like, see, so you do get it. And I just, uh, I was, yeah. Huh? yeah. <laughs> so I was yeah. scared shitless the whole time there, man. But so you were ahead of the New York Times editors in 1920 because they just didn't, they really didn't get Newton's third law. And then here, here you got this 
guy with a PhD in physics who is launching rockets is telling them, and they're like, no, no, you're wrong. No, that won't work in space. And finally, in 1969, like two days, like the astronauts of Apollo 11 are like halfway to the moon. And the Times publishes an apology to Robert Goddard, who's been dead for like, <laughs> you know, since 1945 by this, like, sorry to the family of Robert Goddard. Yeah, the, we were wrong back in 1920. Yeah. Our bad. Uh, rockets do work in a vacuum in outer space. Gee, well, because the so the the liquid filled rocket, if I remember, so this all turns into what was the, I guess they called it the A two, the aggregate rocket. Is that right? Well, if you're you're thinking mostly the the V two, which was the A four. I'm sorry, A four that yeah. turned into the V two. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. good catch. That's, <laughs> and um, it just kind of blew my mind when we were reading about this because it's uh, people get a little bit goofy. You know, I think we we both know that we live in a culture where people don't read past headlines. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, some people uh, saw the title of our, uh, you know, Werner von Braun episode, and either got um, it, it, like, "Oh, all of Nazis—they're uh, all Nazis over there," or they turned it into like, "This guy's besmirching the good name of NASA." And yeah, I, is it safe to say the truth's a little bit in the middle there? It is, and it's really complex because there's actually a spectrum of, um, you know, Nazi devotion to to the Nazi Party. And Von Braun is one of these guys who's like somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. The um, the biographer who wrote who wrote a book about Von Braun, Michael Neufeld, uh, the way he described him, the state of conscience that no one knows what was going through the guy's mind. But Neufeld wrote that uh, Von Braun um, sleepwalked into a Faustian deal. <laughs> With, that's, um, that's you know, you got to think about how the whole thing started. Like first, um, it started with the, uh, the, the Reichswehr. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the German right, but the, the Reichswehr. Yeah, possible. We, we're just yeah. a couple kids this from is, Jersey over here. Yeah. You're all good. So, so this is the, uh, the, the German army during the Weimar Republic. The, the Reichswehr are the ones who recruited von Braun. So it's pre-Nazi Germany. Now things are getting, you know, things are starting to build up with the Nazi party, but he's this, this, this rocket genius who's like, I want to go to graduate school. I want to get my PhD in aerospace engineering and the Reichswehr, which is part of the Weimar Republic, which is, you know, like an I- idealistic type of uh, government is like, yeah, we'll fund you. But soon after that, the Reichswehr gets replaced by the Wehrmacht because the Nazis take over and he's like, he's stuck in that situation it's like that david is sitting there saying i might not have the pronunciations right and now he's hitting them all like home runs out of the park while you and me stumbled over these for our episode maybe for an american i mean um, <laughs> you know so i don't know i don't i don't know exactly how to i mean it's there's good and bad there's it's like i'm, I'm convinced he's not he was not ideologically a nazi he was not like someone who was like thinking oh i think you know there's the superior race and you know, I don't know if he was particularly anti-Semitic. It just, um, but he wasn't willing to stop at anything to get his dream of getting people into space, even if it meant being, you know, in the 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 Schutzstaffen, the the SS. Uh, he was some invited. Bad, he knew some bad invited. News. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you had to. He had to go into that, and then. Once you're in the SS, I mean, you are definitely, you know, on the, the war criminal side. So in uh, when the OSS was sent to round up um, not just rocket scientists, but 
all kinds of specialists from Nazi Germany. President Truman had ordered that if there's any possible suspicion that anybody could be possibly a war criminal, then the OSS was supposed to detour that person over to Nuremberg for the investigation. But they, in reality, they kind of, you know, look the other way. It's kind of like, so when he's asked about it, it's sort of like, you know, that old Mel Brooks uh, routine with Carl, you know, the late Carl Reiner, just comedy just lost him. All right. As, as you probably know, he did this interview with um, uh, Mel Brooks and for the 2000 year old man, a classic, but they did these other little side uh, s- sketches. And there's one where he's like, he's like Adolf Hartler of the <laughs> Narzi film company. You remember that one? And he's like, it's like, did you have something to do with the Nazi? Oh no, Nazi, we hated them. They were our worst enemies. And then later he's defending me. He's like, you know, what what about Nuremberg? He's like, well, you know, it's uh, you send people to camp in the summer. <laughs> That's all they were doing is sending sending some nice people to camp, mostly in summer. Yeah. We had a, a a good buddy of mine. I, I won't say his name. He's uh, pretty he's on TV. But um, he was telling me that he went to Germany for uh, Oktoberfest mm-hmm. and he was saying that he's he's. You know, been a bunch of different countries, but he did see the divide in um, yeah. in Germany, where you like you're in Berlin and everything's like they look like they're from the future, and everybody's very pro mm-hmm. pop culture and yeah. uh, you know championing liberal causes almost to excess. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you go yeah. to uh, over to you know Bavaria, if you will, and it's just like uh, there's certain benches they don't want you sitting on unless you're German. So. Because, right, I'm, right, right. because I'm blonde hair and blue eyed, they'd think I was German. Meanwhile, I'm just an Irish kid. But yeah, 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 yeah. So. I know, and no, and I'm Jewish. So that, from my perspective on this, is that um, if I compare someone like Von Braun um, to say Charles Lindbergh, I, I, I actually I'm, I'm kind of more pissed off by Lindbergh. Because Lindbergh Interesting. didn't have to do any of what he, you know, he's like comfortably in America. He's not, he's not like his life is being threatened. And then he goes as Hitler's personal guest in Germany, um, touring the Luftwaffe and going around the U.S. And, oh, they're just so wonderful in Germany. And then he gets all, all like isolation uh, and and actually, did you know that the astronauts, some of them, when they were when they had to do PR, where they were sent around with Lindbergh, like you'll see in like in the movie Apollo thirteen is like one of my favorite movies about the Apollo program, uh, uh, directed by Ron Howard. Such a great film. That and holds up they, pretty they, well, I've been told, right? Hmm? That holds up pretty well in terms really, of accuracy, right? really, you know, accurate. I think Howard did a great job on that. And they, he gets, there's a little, little historical um, angle in there where they actually have Lindbergh come in to comfort the mother of Jim Lovell when they're not sure if they're going to get back safely. He's like, this, this guy is this guy. We got two guys here. One's name is Neil Armstrong. The other is Buzz Aldrin. They're going to sit with you. He's like, she's like, Oh, are you boys in, in the space business too? (laughs) And then um, they had Charles Lindbergh to sit with her. But I actually heard that a lot of these astronauts, they, they kind of were pissed off that they, they were forced to hang out with Lindbergh and do, you know, PR appearances with him because they didn't really like Lindbergh because they remembered that 
they thought of him as kind of like a traitor that he, you know, during the build up to World War II, that he didn't recognize, um, you know, the danger of Germany and that he was sort of, in a way, he was anti-American, even though he ended up going into World War II, he got a commission, but he was sort of, you know, last in line for that. And they, they weren't very impressed with that. They thought it was, they thought it was, uh, you know, they're just not into, into Lindbergh. But those are uh, a lot of people alive who just remembered him as the great hero. Yeah, I mean, because what a, a life. We did talk about him on an early, early episode of Loser because we did, mm-hmm. um, I believe the guy's name was, uh, I think it was Richard, but he went by Bruno Hauptman that was mm-hmm. uh, um, the Lindbergh baby kidnapper. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I heard part of that episode. Oh, yeah. We had a lot yeah, of fun with that. But interesting. Lindbergh was like, you know, the A-list celebrity of the time. But then yeah. you start reading yeah. like they they're now saying that they're pretty comfortable with the idea that he was borderline, if not a, a eugenicist. Is that the right term? When they- he was, yeah, he was a white supremacist. Oh, some wild he shit. He was, uh, yeah, I mean, he would be, you know, today we would be, he just would could not be the hero that he was in those days. And, and all the more irony that in the, their movie about him, they get Jimmy Stewart, <laughs> who's just like, you know, um, I forgot that famous Christmas movie, you know, Oh, yeah. It's a wonderful life. It's like he's the most innocent, you know, the last person who he's just like the worst uh, guy to play Lindbergh ever. It's like, yeah. you know, gave Lindbergh the image that he might not have deserved. I do wonder about that, too, because it's like uh, if Tom Hanks was to play somebody yeah. like downright villainous, we yeah. like Tom Hanks so much, you almost forgive mm-hmm. him. <laughs> yeah, like Charlie Chaplin playing Hitler. <laughs> oh, not bad. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah. It's- yeah, I wanted yeah. to ask you one thing real quick as we were talking about Apollo 13. If I remember yeah. right, and, and please stop me because my space history, I'm not well versed on. Um, 13 was supposed to go to the moon. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was supposed to go and land in the Fram Morrow Highlands, which was going to be a really interesting place to go scientifically because the first two missions that had landed men on the moon went to lowland areas. And by this area in Framaro, it was built up from um, what happened was there were in, in billions of years ago, um, early in the moon's history, there were a lot of impacts from giant rocks coming from space, which really dominates the shaping of the lunar surface. And there was a big area carved out called the Imbrian Basin. And huge amounts of lunar crust were like ejected up and they all landed down to form the Framaro Highland. And by sampling that area, they would have been able to get um, uh, samples that would tell scientists a lot about the origins of the moon. And they later did. They got from Apollo 14 because uh, they ended up changing the destination of the 14 uh, landing party to the Framaro Highland. So they even really depict this in the Apollo 13 movie pretty well, where, where Jim Lovell's character, I mean, um, Jim Lovell, uh, Jim Lovell, Tom Hanks' character, is like really is like, oh, I'm, I trained for Framaro. I'm really excited, and uh, it, yeah, it was a, it was a big deal scientifically. Public wise, public was already you know it was a snooze by that time until <laughs> something went wrong. I mean, the only thing the public was into is like the media were were emphasizing that oh, it's Apollo 13. Is it bad luck? And that's what they were talking about, and right up to the point where they had the accident. Oh man, they're they're funny that way with that stuff. Um, so we do cover, uh, you know, a lot of times we talk about it on the show because 
nobody kind of illuminated me to uh, the way that the press can manipulate something quite like when we went into the, the William Randolph Hearst. Uh, yeah. Empire. But yeah. Uh, that before I get off track, I do want to remember one specific thing because we did talk beforehand. You had something because we talked about the the moon landing, right? And that mm-hmm. was again what a uh, what a, a holy shit type moment as a, a nation, you know. Yeah. I, I got uh, older uncles and aunts and everything that remember just being in awe of the idea that this got pulled off. Yeah. Um, now I wanted to ask you about. I'm just going to say the uh, the four magic words here. Uh, let's rover the moon. Take me. Oh away. yeah, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a, I'm a science advisor, one of the science advisors to that. So um, that's an Israeli uh, non-governmental organization that's running that. And hey, anyone listening, we're looking for donors, big donors. So if anyone's interested in uh, private uh, private industry uh, rovering around the moon, not only for science but also to develop, uh, you know, industrial. Uh, possibilities mining and things like that Uh, so what this is so there was an israeli attempt to land on the moon with a probe and it was really novel because first just for my own knowledge before i don't mean to cut you off at all but um so how many countries in total have been to the moon now at this point well if that it depends if you mean if that includes crashing on the moon (laughs) if it includes crashing then it's five if it includes soft landing it's three so so five with uh, a crash yeah, but but you need to keep in perspective. It's actually hard to crash on the moon. It's hard to just get something to touch the moon. The very first landing on the moon, which was in 1959, was actually a crash. It was a Soviet mission, the Luna 2 mission, uh, that um, while Khrushchev was in charge of the Soviet Union, boy, did he spin that for publicity. It was a really big deal because then anytime that a flight got like within, you know, spinning distance of the moon, like several tens of thousands of kilometers, they would say that's a lunar mission. And the Soviet Union would every time, if something launched and had, say, an upper stage booster failure and got stuck in low Earth orbit, they would just call it like cosmos, whatever, put a number after it. If it made it sort of near the moon, they'd name it like Luna with a number. Oh, that is and then to blow it up right the, there, man. Up on the launch pad and never gone to space. And we would never even hear about it. And the Americans, they would just do stuff like on live TV, which probably was kind of stupid because that this will tie in with Von Braun and the first satellite is like a huge story about the Navy versus the army. Not, not in football, but in launching a satellite. Oh yeah. Uh, in football, it's not much. Two, so you might've been rooting for the Navy from what I've heard of your, your podcast, but they didn't do so well with the first satellite uh, for America. I'll tell you, we have uh, we still have we're good on time right now. So if you wanted to tell that one, um, we're um, we're excited, man, because normally I have to write and prepare, and and sometimes my guests come in knowing nothing. So it's very fun to almost have a role reversal here today. So sure. uh, by all means, there, please, you uh, you know, have fun with it, man. I'm I'm loving this. All right, so so maybe we could say take it from where I think you guys left off on on your first von Braun podcast where you um you kind of took it up to i know you got to where you, you know you got you went to the end of his life but after leaving germany at that point your history just kind of really got spread out so yeah you know, that was a time constraint because eventually yeah, it has to yeah. go home yeah so where, where you kind of left off on the detail was so you had the oss was in there 
looking for as many Germans as, as they could get of the specialists. The Soviet Union was doing the same thing. They were looking for specialists, and they actually got more of them than, than the U.S. got. Um, now, ironically, they ended up not really utilizing in, in terms of ro for rocket specialists. You know, they used them at the beginning for a few years, and then those guys kind of kind of faded away to obscurity because the Soviet Union had its own rocket specialist that was actually way smarter than any of those guys. This was Sergei Korolev. Korolev? Yeah. yeah. Cool. Got it. His pronunciation, yeah. There's so many. There's like 500 different ways to pronounce it. Korolev, Korolev. Um, let's just call him Sergei. <laughs> and he, he had, <laughs> he had a history, you know, before, before World War II, he was sent to a gulag. He was part of in, in Stalin's uh, purges. So just like we had Robert Goddard on the American side launching the first liquid rocket, Sergei Korolev launched the first Soviet liquid-fueled rocket. Now, why is liquid, liquid fuel so important? Because there were rockets before this. There were solid fuel rockets. Gunpowder goes back centuries, goes all the way back to, uh, you know, to ancient China, or at least China of the Middle Ages. And there's actually a, a story um, Maybe part rumor. No, you know, it's hard to track the historicity of this. My favorite kind of history, by the way. Yeah, you know, we're talking like the year one thousand. So accuracy, but apparently there was a there was a, a rocket guy named um, Wan Hu. You heard of him? Who? <laughs> Me too. Who? He's got a brother. What? Oh, another brother. I don't know. <laughs> so, no, Brooks would have a field day with that yeah. one. <laughs> so, um, so who who was first? To launch our, well, he tried. What he tried to do was so they had they had gunpowder was their only fuel. That is a solid fuel, gunpowder. And so thousand years ago or so, the Chinese had these rockets and just basically tubes full of gunpowder with some fins on them. And he gathered up the biggest rockets that they had, 47 of them, and he built this this chair with wings on it. Oh boy. And 47 gunpowder rockets attached to the chair. I'm I'm getting an image of Wiley Coyote. And it was probably like that, you know, Acme stamped on on each rocket. And he's got these 47 assistants because to light the rockets, they just have like fuses at the end. So I mean I could just imagine him instructing, remember, I said light them all at the same time. You know, so the idea is these all these rockets are supposed to go off and propel him up into the sky. And based on, you know, the analysis of the writings, it seems like he probably just sort of blew up. Does, doesn't work very well. Probably ended up like the coyote, you know. So that's not a good way to get people into space. And there were other ideas about how you get into space. So there Hard was for the uh, volunteer recruiting efforts. I'll put it that way. There was there was a story in the in the uh, late 1500s. Johannes Kepler, the astrophysicist, uh, that the probe, the Kepler probe, is named after. Okay. He imagined. He's in my book too. He uh, he imagined a journey to the moon where the, the character in his story gets to the moon because his mother is a witch and his mother casts a spell and gets 
the character to the moon. But this ends up getting his mother, Katerina Kepler, into trouble later because they thought, oh, you know, he wrote a book about the mother being a witch and probably his mother's a witch. So they put her on trial for witchcraft. He ends up being her lawyer to defend her from witchcraft. Yeah. It's another thing you can read about in this book, The History of the Moon. <laughs> uh, plus so, the book one more time, too, because uh, yeah. we're going to have to wrap a little bit after eight here just uh, for today. Okay. But I, I, David, if you're going to allow us, I would love to have you back on at another time sure. as well, too. So, um, so how much more time we have? Uh, I would say probably less than 10 minutes. Okay. So I'm trying to go very quick. There was another thing. We had Jules Verne, the writer in the 19th century. You can imagine people being shot out of a cannon, which is also not a good idea because of something called acceleration. They'll basically be squashed. Basically, your weight increases. You just become so many numbers of times your own weight. That's the G-force. It's, uh, it's the original G, Gallagher show. If it's 20 G, you're 20 times your own weight. If Jesus. it's 40 G and getting shot out of the cannon, it's going to be like hundreds of G's or whatever. So <laughs> there was a there was a Russian named Konstantin Tsiolkovsky who was inspired by Jules Verne. And he thought, well, I got to think of a real way to get people into space. And he came up with the idea of you could just have rockets, but have some way to throttle your rockets up and down and have more gradual acceleration that could get people into space. And then that led to the generation of uh, Herman Oberth, whom you mentioned. And Oberth, um, yeah, there's a name. You know, he, he came up with a lot of what he advised on a movie in, uh, in 1929 in Germany called Frau im Moon, The Woman in the Moon, where they showed details of this rocket launch that ended up being things you take for granted today, the countdown. You know, you keep no down because if you go 10, 9, 8, 7 in Germany, because otherwise you're going to be like, you know, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the Holy Grenades. Like that's we're doing this on three. No. Well, did we say three? No, we said one, two, five. So you need a countdown. He also came up with the the astronauts in the rocket would be horizontal. That way your G-force goes like eyeballs in, which is way better for you medically, physiologically is better. Staging, having multiple stages. They showed this in the movie. They showed like water being like spewed onto the launch pad as the no shit. To lifts off to absorb the vibration so that the whole thing doesn't break up. And there were so many details in there that when the Nazis took power in 1933, they banned the film because it would reveal too much, uh, too much secret information about the V2 project. I, I liked that one, too. Just uh, in our Orson Welles episode, we covered that uh, any movies, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the guy who wrote everything with him, but uh, he had a Jewish co-writer that pretty much uh, invented the Kansas scene for color in uh, um, Wizard of Oz. And oh, then he was also the co-screenwriter for uh, Citizen Kane. And oh. uh, his his name had to be removed from the credits in Germany so that those films oh. could be seen at those times. That's how <laughs> that's how deep that shit ran. Yeah, that's that's like on the same level of uh, Einstein's relativity. You know, that's that Jewish science. So it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, to, to Von Braun, I am drinking out of my uh, my Das Boot. Cool. So I yeah. bought that in uh, Leipzig, Germany, um, when I was coming home from Dubai with uh, on a deployment with the Navy. Yeah, and then and I got uh, I got Starbucks. I, I don't know. I think there's something German about that. Not- you're uh, you're West Coast. You guys are supposed to be yeah. drinking that. You're good, yeah. man. It's- 
Oh, we, do we have time to go into the satellite now? Because so what happened is they brought they brought the uh, the Germans back to America, and they had them just basically. This is paperclip, like, right? Operation paperclip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. First, it was when they actually rounded up von Braun. It was actually called Overcast, and then it was changed to paperclip. But it's the same program, and so they 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 sent them out on an army base in in the southwest somewhere, and then later they were moved to Alabama. And they were just sort of using the German team to um, to build missiles. And what they were able to do was um, there was another rocket, an American rocket from Caltech on the West Coast in, in, in the Los Angeles area in Pasadena. And they found a way to, to mount the American rocket on top. So you'd have like a second stage. So you have a two-stage missile. And from that, that would evolve into the Redstone rocket. And when the U.S. started getting interested in the possibility of satellites and when Von Braun got this publicity from from Disney to help him push the idea of uh, <laughs> space flight. So this would end up being that the, the V-2 would sort of evolve in the rocket that they would use in the Army program to launch the satellite. So before you had NASA, you actually had a few different government organizations working separately on satellite projects. The Army team was the one that had the Germans that were in Huntsville, Alabama. And then the Navy team, they had its own team, and they had their own rocket called Vanguard. And there was a big debate about should they let the Von Braun team launch a satellite or should they let the Navy do it? And what won out was let the Navy do it because that was a totally American project and we shouldn't have Nazis launching uh, you know, the first American satellite, it shouldn't be, shouldn't be German, but it was a total flop. So it's, you see these on these blooper reels, you know, the blooper reels of the early ride. And it's this one where the Navy is ready to launch its, uh, its satellite, which is already the Soviets had already launched Sputnik one and Sputnik two, which was a lot bigger than Sputnik one. And it carried a dog, so that that meant they could launch a nuclear weapon into space because if it was heavy enough to to lift a dog and all the life support equipment, then it was uh, you know you could you could launch a nuclear weapon. And the Navy tried it with a Vanguard. The thing kind of lifts off like you know a, a few centimeters off the pad, and it just kind of explodes and falls down. And it's on all the blooper reels. And at that point, they're like, "Okay, Von Braun, we'll let you do it now." And he launched. Explorer One, and he did this with um, with actual scientific equipment on it, and the first American satellite. Um, William Pickering from Caltech. I know that and, name. And James Van Allen. These were the scientists involved in this. And and they, they had radiation detectors on there, which allowed them to uh, detect what Van Allen had hypothesized, the presence of these belts of radiation called the Van Allen belts, which are really, really important in terms of our understanding about the radiation environment that I study in terms of space medicine and medical effects of radiation. Because when we send astronauts beyond low Earth orbit to the moon, we got to navigate a certain way. We got to go through the skinniest parts of the Van Allen belts is the inner belt and the outer belt. And you got to go really fast through just a corner of the inner belt, not spend too much time in the outer belt. And these had to be all mapped out 
And the very first satellite that the Americans send in space, because of Von Braun's team, is the very beginning of that research that led us to figure it out. Today, we know there's even a third Van Allen belt that just lights up every now and then when there are a lot of when there's a lot of solar particle event activity, solar flares. Uh, oh, so, okay. So, all right. this is really, really important. And then, you know, it ended up leading to a lot of other missions. But this is all going on in the context of the Soviet Union, led by Sergei Korolev, doing everything else first. They get they get the first satellite in space first. They get the first dog in space. They get the first man in space. They get the first woman in space. I knew that because uh, Yuri Gagarin was an assignment of mine back in the day. Yeah, they did everything absolutely first. We didn't send women into space until the 1980s. You know, we could have, but we just didn't. We just, you know, we had a whole team of uh, women uh, doing the same Mercury, uh, Project Mercury training for the the Mercury program. Oh, yeah. And through everything that the men were going through, and they were just sort of ignored. Uh, That's wild on that one. That's a... Uh... I, I have uh, one quick follow-up question for you, and then we're going to wrap. Today. I, I, again, I would love to have you back on. You've been very fun to talk to. I'd be um, happy to. And if even if you want to come back and, you know, not necessarily for Von Braun, but I, what we were talking about offline, I mean, we were talking about the a certain, I won't name the person because then people will figure it out, but <laughs> remember the certain per person in history and medicine. I mean, I'm kind of not only in the history of science, but also the history of medicine and uh, things like that. Well, if you want to plug uh, the podcast, because the one that you co-wrote, I think that's pretty cool. And I, I know some people who would yeah, definitely like to listen. Podcast episode I've written. There's a, there's a podcast called um, uh, Legends of Surgery. It's not my podcast. It's somebody else. There's a guy named Tyler Rouse. But I just guest wrote the latest episode for that, which is on something called induced hypothermia, which means when you lower the body temperature of a patient on purpose in order to protect the brain for various reasons. That's uh, awesome. <laughs> and, it's all about the history of that. and it goes back to ancient Egypt. It's not just uh, history of medicine and the history of surgery is actually really fascinating. Um, you know, and we were, I don't know, whatever, there, there could be certain candidate losers for your show where there might be either a science angle or a medical angle where, you know, you might just want to bring me in. We need subject matter experts. Hey, tell us about, Hey, even for you, you're, you're, uh, I'm not a Yankee person. Sorry. (laughs) Cause I'm from, I'm like a non-practicing Met fan because I'm, (laughs) my parents were here really good. My parents were Brooklyn Dodgers fans because, you know, that's where they grew up. And that means you're the next generation probably going to end up as Met fans. That's how it works. But I, I just got this thought, you know, if you were to do like Lou Gehrig as your as your character, um, you might want to know what is Lou Gehrig disease? Because that that's a, it's not just, no one calls it Lou Gehrig disease outside the U.S., also it, true. Yeah. That's <laughs> other names for it. <laughs> and, uh, no, that, that's another possibility. There are, there are a lot of possibilities. Yeah. There's a, a bunch too. And I'm, uh, I'm excited to meet you, man. You're a great guy. I knew this was going to be a fun time to talk to you today yeah. too. I do want to throw I one to be in New Jersey because of, uh, this new project I have coming up, uh, a NASA grant. It's a space medicine thing. And it's, uh, through, it's a, it's a NASA small business program. And so I'm, Oh, no uh, shit. 
collaborating with a small business in Princeton. And so ah. I'm mostly here at Oregon Health Sciences University, but uh, they will need me. I'm their medical director for this project. Uh, has involved surgery on astronauts. And um, there'll be a few reasons to go to Princeton once in a while. Well, if we can sneak you out and get you into the studio one time, I would love that uh, very much, David. I, I got to ask the one final question here for you. I got a, a dear friend of mine who's a great guy. He's been a guest on the show a few times. He is a bit of a conspiracy theorist. What would you, um, David, have to say to a guy who thinks that potentially the moon is not real? The moon is not real or the missions are not real? The, the, or... No, that, that there's not even the moon itself is not real because we only ever see the one face of it, he told me. Oh, I, I mean, I could explain why we see the one face, but uh, I don't think you have time. That's <laughs> it has to do with the tidal forces. And I would have to explain what tidal forces are, why it causes the ocean tides and why that over billions of years had tidally locked the moon so that we only see one face. If this goes on for another 20 billion years or so, then the Earth also would be tidally locked to the moon so that you can only see the moon from one side of Earth. Like imagine you can only see it from America or from Australia. That's what would oh, happen, okay. except that before that happens, the sun is going to swell up so much that it'll absorb the Earth and we won't get to that point. Interesting. I, I could explain it. It's just that I you know, got it explain a little bit about the, the geophysics of how the tidal forces work. No, I, I love all that stuff, man. And yeah. uh, I'm excited. Uh, do me a favor and uh, please plug the book again real quick while we're wrapping up here. I want Thank people you. to check this yeah. out. I'm going to do the shameless plug. So nah, I got it's it. called Moon, An Illustrated History from Ancient Myths to the Colonies of Tomorrow. And every um, every spread you have like, uh, oh, look where I opened up, you have a full page illustration and then the text to go along with that. What I happen to open up to is the house of Matthew Bolton, uh, which is um, the segment on what's called the Birmingham Lunar Society, which was in the late 18th century. All these kind of a brain trust of people from that era that all got together. They were called the Moon, the, the Lunar Society, because they met once a month when it was a full moon so they could get home safely at night. And had people like uh, James Watt, the inventor of the steam engine, um, Matthew Bolton, the industrialist, um, Josiah Wedgwood from the Pottery Guy, um, Joseph Priestley, one of the earlier researchers who figured out what oxygen was. Uh, Gee, are some, oh, some deep, like, you're banging heads these, together here. These are the guys who created the Industrial Revolution, all because of the moon, because the moon is how they scheduled their 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 meetups. I mean, they had some of them crazy ideas. They had Erasmus Darwin, the grandfather of Charles Darwin. Uh, he had this idea that all the navies of the world should get together and like get some icebergs and schlep all the icebergs from the poles to the equatorial regions of the world to kind of cool off the equatorial regions and then warm up the poles. So that idea didn't work. But other things like abolishing slavery, they talked about that, and um, the steam engine, digging canals throughout Britain so that the reason Wedgwood was involved in this was because his pottery would go on like horses and buggies and usually didn't end up in such great shape when it got there. So he's like, I know, let's dig canals all over the place. And that kind of helped start the Industrial Revolution also. Uh, but there's just like everything here. I get the last... 
50% or 40% of it is all about the space race. And I get into a lot of detail between what's happening between the Soviet Union and the United States and the whole buildup, all the stuff with Von Braun and his origins and everything that happened there. And I go all the way back into ancient times, even to say the ancient philosophy, philosophy actually started because of the moon. Um, there was a, the first philosopher, Thales, it predicted an eclipse and the moon is getting in front of the sun. That's when an eclipse, he didn't know what the reason was, but he could do the math and that kind of got him attention and that got philosophy going. And it's good because he was the first philosopher and you can't really, you know, be a philosopher by yourself because they debate with each other. You know, <laughs> they're like, as you guys said, the master debaters and you can't be a master debater by yourself. No, it's like comics. Well, comics maybe. have to have other people to, to yeah. shoot the shit with. Otherwise, no one yeah. appreciates your jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I had more time, I could explain why that started philosophy, but it did. It was the moon. I'll tell you what, dude, we're definitely going to do this again. because uh, had some connection with the ancient Babylonians, which led him to calculate when the eclipse would be. And he just, he stopped the whole war that way. You know, and they were impressed. Not a bad he, party. He basically joke. scared the shit out of the military commanders telling them the gods don't want this war you know you guys better um you better stop the fighting like or next tuesday at five o'clock the skies will darken and they're like you know they're like get the fuck out of here you know like you they thought he was a, thought he was a you know crazy thought he was batshit crazy uh and uh then the sky actually does darken at the exact time that he predicted they're like Whoa, you know, and that that stopped the war. And the, the ancient Greek, the Ionian Greeks, who were under the control of one of these empires that were fighting, the Lydian Empire, uh, they could do better. They were like merchants. And he was able to negotiate really good terms for them. And their economy was like booming because of that, because of Thales. So like, this guy is pretty cool. Let's go study with him. And that's what got philosophy started. That's you could argue that's what got science started. Oh, shit. Yeah. See, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm probably going to uh, <laughs> wherever books check, are sold. Yeah, please check that book. I look at a nice hardcover book too. It's uh, it's not Christmas time yet, but think about the gifts for uh, the people in your life that like history on that one. Mm-hmm. And uh, David, are you comfortable with people following you on Twitter or social media? Oh, yeah, right? yeah, at Cosmic Revolution. Yeah. Cosmic Evolution, man. And again, uh, dude, you're a great guy. It was uh, it was awesome to get to talk to you. Um, we went a little bit over on time, so I got to bail before uh, the Sorry, next yeah, session is yeah. coming. In. Yeah. It's my fault, man. Don't worry about that one. But thank you for working with us on everything on that one. Again, that was uh, David Warmflash, guys. Check the book out. It's awesome. Uh, interesting Twitter, too. I'm not on Twitter, but I still read it every now and then. So I, I don't get why you're not on. You know, I heard you on one podcast saying you had to delete your account, but I, I don't know. No it was... There's so much going on with comedy that it was just like, oh, I guess, uh, you know, I, I don't know what it is that I said in 2014 that's going to cost me an opportunity tomorrow. Oh, so, okay. But, uh, no, David, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Thank you for being a friend of the show, sincerely. And uh, okay. thank you to Mike and Ming as well. As well, well as a uh, person sometime, but, you know, if you want to have me online again, well, let me know. Dude, just do me a favor and keep in touch on this one, man. Yeah. Um okay. Kahuna, we're going to wrap up here, brother. I appreciate you letting us go a little bit long, but uh, this was a, an interview with uh, David Warmflash, author David Warmflash, and uh, my name is KP Burke, and this has been American Loser. An American Loser, the day I was born. <laughs>
drunken loser the day I was born An American loser the day I was born